have your Bible, let me invite you to turn to the Gospel of John and to the 6th chapter. John chapter 6. And we're going to read a couple of verses. John chapter 6, beginning in verse 66 through verse 69. So let me invite you, as you're able, to stand in honor of the reading and the hearing of God's Word. John 6, beginning in verse 66, the Apostle John faithfully records, From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. Then said Jesus unto the twelve, Will ye also go away? Then Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. And we believe and are sure that thou art that Christ, the Son of the living God. May God bless today the reading and the hearing of his word. And let's join again in prayer. Let us pray. Gracious and loving God, we give thee thanks again for the scriptures and for the witness to Christ. And we ask as we meditate again on this teaching today and look through these questions of the catechism that you would open our eyes, that you would unstop our ears, that you would loosen our minds and hearts to be able to recognize and receive the truth. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. So we're returning this afternoon to this series through the Heidelberg Catechism. And of course, this has been an instrument for discipleship or teaching people the faith. Uh, for many generations. And um, one of the things I think we're learning together in this catechism is what does it mean to be a Christian? Who is a Christian? What makes a person a believer? And uh, as we look at this, we're, we're, we're looking at this, at this as a question that, that someone asks early on, you know, you, you, when you're first introduced to the gospel and maybe... First time you go to church, uh, maybe you started as a child, maybe you came as an adult, and you asked, uh, you know, what is it that makes a person a Christian? But that's also a question that we, we ask really all of our lives, even after we become believers. We're always asking, how can I be a faithful Christian? How can I serve Christ better? And so this this catechism is, is teaching us whether uh, we're... Uh, maybe thinking about becoming a Christian, and that might be true of some people who are here, um, or whether we've been a Christian for many years. This catechism is divided into three parts, uh, guilt, grace, and gratitude. And we're in the middle part. We're looking at grace. We're looking at what's revealed about salvation through Christ. And in in the part of the catechism that we're looking at, There is a teaching here about a heartfelt experience of God's grace uh, through Christ and how that begins with true, authentic, genuine faith, which is belief, trust, confidence in Christ. And we're looking at how this true faith is presented to us in the scriptures. So uh, our first question for Lord's Day 7 is question 20. 
Are all men then, as they've perished in Adam, saved by Christ? And the answer is given in the Catechism, no, only those who are engrafted into him and receive all his benefits by a true faith. And so this first question is really the question of universalism. And that is, will all men be saved in the end? If God is all good and all loving and all kindness and all gracious and all merciful, as well as being all powerful, why don't we come to the conclusion that that all men are saved in the end? All men, all fallen men who perished in Adam, that God will eventually save them. And this is called universalism. The idea that all men, without any distinction, will be saved. It's, it's been held through the years by various people. There was a, a fellow named Origen in the early church that held this view. He believed that in the end, everybody would eventually be saved. And there are modern day people who articulate this. There's a, a theologian named David Bentley Hart who basically channels origin and gives the same opinion that in the end all people will be saved. You typically hear this among uh, liberal mainline Protestants. I think I mentioned last week, you'll hear Pope Francis seeming to say something like this, the famous interview he had with a little boy who was crying because his dad was an atheist. He said, don't worry, don't worry, God will you know, take care of him in the end and so forth. Is that correct? Is that the right teaching? And that's what's being asked in question 20. Are all men then, as they perished in Adam, saved by Christ? And the answer that is given comes back very clearly, very soberly, and very seriously in the answer to question 20. The first word is no. No. That's not said gleefully. That's not, that's not said with a, a, a smirch. Um, it, it's not said cynically, um, but it's said soberly and seriously. No, no. And then the further answer is, who is saved? Only those who are engrafted into him and receive all his benefits by a true faith. Now, why is the answer that comes back no? That answer does not come back through merely sort of rational exercise if you're thinking about it, but it comes back because this is the teaching of Scripture. Scripture does not teach universalism. And so uh, the first two uh, proof texts that are given are these. Um, It actually gives them the order of Matthew first and then Isaiah, but I'm going to begin with Isaiah. The first proof text is Isaiah 53, 11, where Isaiah the prophet is prophesying about Christ. And he said of Christ, he shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Why is that a proof text? Does it say that the servant, the righteous servant will justify all? No, he will justify many. 
And he will still be a satisfied Savior. And this is a proof text also for what we call particular redemption. He shall bear their iniquities. He shall bear the iniquities of those who will be saved. And then the, the second proof text that we could look at is Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. It's interesting, you know, the, the, uh, this catechism is, is really full of scriptural proofs. There are a lot of scriptural proofs. It's kind of interesting the ones that sometimes they choose to put forward. And this one, I think, is uh, interesting. This is the, the angel's announcement to Joseph that the Lord Jesus is going to be born and the name that he is going to be given. And so in Matthew 1, verse 21, it says, And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus. And the name Jesus is the Greek form of the Old Testament name Joshua. And that name means Jehovah saves. Jehovah saves. Um, Thou shalt call his name Jesus. And then the last line of Matthew 1.21. For he shall save his people from their sins. And notice it doesn't say he shall save all people without exception. But it says he shall save his people. And this is also like the passage in Isaiah. This is a a proof text as well for what we call particular redemption or limited atonement. That Christ's death upon the cross is for the redemption of many and is, it is for the redemption of His people, but it's not for the redemption of all men without exception. I'll add another verse, and this is the one that I usually turn to myself. It's not listed as a proof text by the, the authors of the Catechism, but John 3.36. you got John 3. You've got the interview with, with Nicodemus. You've got John 3.16, For God so loved the world, and so forth, a wonderful passage. But how does John chapter 3 end? John 3, verse 36. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. And he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. The Bible does not teach universalism. And so when the question is posed, as it's put here in the catechism, or when you have a college dorm bowl session with your uh, friends about are all people saved? The answer is a sober no, because that's not the teaching of Scripture. Scripture reveals that uh, this is the way by saving some that God gains the most glory for himself and the most blessing for his people. His ways, as Isaiah put it in Isaiah 55, are higher than our ways. And his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. We can't pretend to know why God ordained it this way, but we know that through the revelation of Scripture, this is what Scripture teaches about his ordination or decrees of salvation. Notice also three things that are taught here in the catechism about those who are saved. Who are the ones who are saved? First of all, they are the ones who are engrafted into Christ. This is language is taken from John 15. I cited it this morning in my sermon where Christ teaches, uh, I am the true vine. 
or I'm the vine, you are the branches. Um, And then that image is also picked up by the Apostle Paul in Romans 11 when he talked about uh, Gentiles who were like uh, wild plants that were grafted in uh, to uh, the olive tree. And so here, uh, the, the, the people who are saved are those who are engrafted into Christ. They have union with Christ. And this is an organic, a biological image of what it means to be a Christian. When you are a Christian, you are joined to Christ in the way a branch is joined to the main vine. Secondly, such persons receive the benefits of Christ. By being joined to Christ, they receive from Christ nourishment, spiritually speaking. And then thirdly, they do this, they have union with Christ and enjoy the benefits by means of a true faith. We talk about justification by faith. Notice it's always justification by faith, not because of faith, but by faith. Meaning faith is the instrument or means by which one is organically joined to Christ and begins to receive the benefits of Christ. By calling this faith true faith, that indicates that there can also be false faith. That is, there can be what we call false professors. That doesn't mean false university teachers. It means a professor, one who professes that he is a Christian. I've noted many times that one of the most frightening passages in the Bible is in Matthew 7 when Christ says, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, and I will say, depart from me, I never knew you. And so only persons who have a true faith by means of a true faith are organically joined to Christ and receive the benefits from him. They are the ones who are saved, and that is what is taught in Scripture. One of the proof texts that's offered is John 1, verses 12 and 13, which says, But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. That even to him that believe on his name is stressing the instrumentality of faith, belief which were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And of course, there's a stress in all of this on salvation being a work of God's grace. So we are children of God, not by blood. That is, we're not, born, we're not Christians because we were born into a Christian family, with all due respect to some of the views of our paedo-baptistic friends, nor of, because of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God, but of God. Question 21 then asks, okay, what is true faith? And again, this is a basic discipleship question. What is true faith? You're saying there's false faith, there are false professors. What is true faith? And the catechism teaches us true faith is not only a certain knowledge whereby I hold for truth all that God has revealed to us in his word, but also an assured confidence which the Holy Ghost works by the gospel in my heart that not only to others, but to me also, remission of sin, everlasting righteousness and salvation 
are freely given by God merely of grace only for the sake of Christ's merits. Really is a foundational question. What is true faith? The answer that is provided by our catechetical teacher here offers several interconnected points based on scriptural teaching. First of all, it tells us true faith is based on a certain knowledge that I hold for truth of all that God has revealed in his word. Now, it doesn't say that, that, this, that this is all that true faith is because it starts off true faith is not only a certain knowledge, but that implies that it does include a certain knowledge. So being a Christian is knowing certain things and believing them to be true. We can think about it in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul talked about the gospel that he had preached to the Corinthians. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised again the third day according to the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas in the twelve. That's knowledge about historically what happened to Christ. And being a believer is first knowing that and believing it. But it's not only that. It's not mere knowledge alone. Someone might know all the facts about the Bible. Someone might even believe that all of these facts are historically true and that they can be unconverted. I can tell you for sure, having studied uh, uh, New Testament at at, uh, the graduate level, that there are people who really know a lot of historical facts about the Bible. They know the biblical languages. They know the historical backgrounds. But very often they're not Christians. They're not believers. They just know. They, have, they know the impression. A lot of times they might even believe it. You know, it basically to be historically true. Bart Ehrman will argue against some skeptics for the historicity of Jesus. That Jesus really lived. He'll affirm that as a historical truth against some kind of crazy people on the fringe who say that he was only a mythic figure. But he's not a Christian, right? So just having knowledge and even believing those historical facts to be true is not, does not make for salvation. But the catechism teaches that the person who has this knowledge and believes it to be true also has an assured confidence an assured confidence in God and in what Christ has done. And the catechism teaches that this is only given to this person by the Holy Ghost, by the Holy Spirit that works in his heart. He hears the preaching of the gospel and the Spirit regenerates him. He experiences the new birth. Christ told Nicodemus, you must be born again. Or born from above. And then finally it stresses that this is not merely something that one can observe in others. But this is something that the person who has true faith recognizes has happened to him. And observes it within himself. So he has knowledge. He has assured confidence given by the Holy Spirit. And he sees that this faith is not something just that he sees in his fellow Christians or other people, but he sees it. He sees the work of God that's been wrought 
in his own life. There's a great difference between looking at pictures of food on the menu and being able to taste the actual food for oneself. One might be really good at looking at pictures of food and saying, oh, I know what that is. That's a filet mignon and that's a ravioli or whatever. You can be really good at recognizing the pictures. But have you eaten the food? And so the, the person who, is, who has true faith, authentic faith, has, as Psalm 34, 8 puts it, tasted and seen. He's experienced, she's experienced this for her, himself or herself. He knows that he has been forgiven of his sins, that he has been given a righteousness that he did not earn, what the old theologians called an alien righteousness a righteousness that is not his own. And he has salvation from God, as the catechism puts it, merely of grace, only for the sake of Christ's merits. Not for his own merits, but for the the merits of Christ. The first proof text that is listed for this question is Peter's confession in John 6, verse 69. And I read the, the larger context for it where Uh, There were disciples turning back and not following Christ. And Christ turns to the twelve and said, are you guys going to abandon me also? And it's Peter who speaks up. And he says, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. That's John 6, verse 68. And then Peter makes a confession. It's a a corporate confession. It's, It's made in the first person plural. And we believe and are sure that thou art that Christ, the Son of the living God. And everyone, I think, who is a believer has some point where there is a confession of faith, where faith is expressed. In Romans 10.9, the Apostle Paul said that if we... Uh, call upon the name of the Lord Jesus. If we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in our hearts that God has raised him from the dead, we will be saved. And it's fitting and right for someone who is a Christian to publicly confess that faith. Now, they could falsely do it. They could say it and not, not really change their heart. But the genuine Christian, again, not only observes this faith in others, but recognizes it within himself. And he, he rightly, accurately professes that the Holy Spirit has given to him that true faith that has organically joined him to Christ and allowed him to receive, begin to be, receive the benefits of Christ. We can see this also in Martha in John 11. After Christ said in John eleven twenty five, 25, declared to her, I am the resurrection and the life. She responded in John eleven twenty seven, 27, Yea, Lord, I believe that thou art the Christ, the Son of God. Or the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts 8, uh, who was reading Isaiah, and Philip uh, crawled up in the chariot with him, and, and from that passage preached Jesus to him, and then they came to the body of water, and the Ethiopian said, said What hinders me from being baptized? And Philip said, You can if you believe with all your heart. And then Philip 
uh, uh, listened as the Ethiopian eunuch said, as it's reported in Acts 8.37, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. There must be a turning point in which one declares his or her allegiance to Christ. We were discussing with the youth on Friday evening the fact that Christian faith is not a blind leap of faith. I mentioned uh, to them the, the uh, Scandinavian theologian Soren Kierkegaard who said faith is just a leap in the dark. It's just a jump in the dark. With all due respect to him, no, it's not. Christian faith is confidence, belief, and trust in the objective historical reality of what has been achieved in Christ. That he died on the cross for our sins, that he was buried, that he, on the third day he rose again, that he appeared to Cephas in the twelve, and that he is coming again. Question 22 asks, what is then necessary for a Christian to believe? And the answer is, all things promised us in the gospel, which the articles have already used the word Catholic with this lowercase c, and as we always, when we get to this, this is what you, you read in historical Christian literature. They use the word Catholic, but not in Roman Catholic. The, cat, the, word, the word is an adjective, simply means universal. All things promised to us in the gospel, which articles of our universal, undoubted Christian faith briefly teach us. It's interesting that the proof texts given for this are, first of all, from John 20, verse 31. We're in John's gospel. This is sort of the purpose statement. Why did John write the gospel of John? But these are written that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. The gospels are not neutral historical works. The the authors of the gospels aren't saying, here's the life of Jesus, and I'm just going to step aside. I'm just going to tell you the facts and... I don't have a dog in this fight. Let the chips kind of fall where they may. No. They are biased. The purpose of the scriptures is so that in reading them, we might come to understand that Jesus is the Christ. And that believing in him, we might have life in his name. Christ told the, the apostles in the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 19 and 20, They were to go, they were to teach all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and and then do what? Teach them to observe, to obey all the things that he had commanded. To have true faith means to be an informed believer and to understand the fundamentals of the faith. And this leads us to question 23, which says, okay, what are the articles of faith? What is it that is essential for a Christian to know? What is the knowledge we need to have? And you'll notice that the answer that is given there, as it's printed on the back of your bulletin, is the Apostles' Creed. The Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. The word quick there means the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, 
I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. Again, Catholics, not Roman Catholic. Universal Church. The communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. If you want to experience true faith, then you need to learn these basic articles, embrace them, affirm them, and confess them. Now, just to be clear, the Apostles' Creed was not written by the Apostles. It's not Scripture. It's not on the level of Scripture. It was called the Apostles' Creed because it was believed to summarize what the Apostles taught was most essential for a Christian to believe. And we have, uh, as you well know, in our hymn book, in, among the front matter that's provided as aids for devotion and worship, uh, we often read on page Roman number 12, the Lord's Prayer. But just underneath it is listed the, the so-called Apostles' Creed. Again, there's a difference because what's above is from Matthew 6, verses 9 through 13. That's scripture. What's below there is not scripture, but it is a useful tool. And it's been found to be a useful tool for many years to sort of describe, to summarize, what are the basics of Christian belief? What is the foundation for true faith? And guess what's going to happen in the coming days in this study? The Catechism is going to take us through these articles in the Apostles' Creed, and it's going to use scriptural proof text to show why the fundamental things that are essential for a true faith is believing in God, believing in Christ, believing in the Holy Spirit. And so God willing, we will uh, work through that uh, in the days to come. Friends, uh, what is true faith? True faith is being joined to Christ, receiving the benefits of Christ by the instrument of true faith.